apologies to Mr. Lasso, but <laughs> sleeping with other people is a definitive Sudeikis performance. This is like an eight octave performance. Mm. You know, he has the range. Interesting. Hello, and welcome to the Brightwell Dark Room podcast. Brightwell Dark Room is an online publication for writers and readers who want to look more passionately at film. Each month on our podcast, we belly up with critics, artists, and other Brightwell Dark Room contributors to speak from the heart about movies we love. I'm Zosha Millman, senior editor at Brightwell Dark Room. And I'm Chad Perman, the founder and editor-in-chief at Brightwell Dark Room. And we're joined today by our guest, longtime senior editor at Brightwell Dark Room, Ethan Warren. Hello, Ethan. Hi, guys. Thank you for having me on. That's a treat to finally have you here. Long, long-time reader, first-time caller. You only you, you waited five <laughs> months to have me on, but it's fine. <laughs> Nobody's counting, of course, but yes. Okay. Today we are here to talk about a wonderful movie, uh, a movie that we have an essay up on the site from a writer named Robert Self. The movie is called Sleeping with Other People from Leslie Headland. It's a 2015 film that, according to the IMDb, is about a good-natured womanizer and a serial cheater forming a platonic relationship that helps reform them in ways while a mutual attraction sets in. So, with that really bare-bones-ish thing, we're going to here to fill out all the rest that the IMDb summary did not capture. Is everyone feeling ready to dive in? Let's go. Locked and loaded, man. Let's do it. All right. I guess to start off, let's go straight to the person who picked this movie, which is Zosha Millman. Zosha, tell us why you picked Sleeping with Other People today, just to start us off. Well, I picked it because it's a transcendent movie, and I love it. Also because I was made to be the podcast movie picker this month. Yes. <laughs> but like, I feel like this is a movie that I saw circulating at a couple film festivals. This was a Sundance movie. I, I didn't realize that. That really kind of changes the framing of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was a Sundance. I think it played the Seattle Film Festival. It absolutely did, yeah. I remember that. I didn't make it out despite loving both the lead actors who are Alison Brie and Jason Sudeikis and just, you know, didn't really know anything about it. And at some point when it was finally out on streaming in some way, I was like, oh, you know, who doesn't love a kind of easy to turn on movie? I'll just watch this tonight. Yeah, it's a good streaming one. Yeah, it was very surprising in terms of like, I thought I was just turning on like a popcorn flick, kind of a rom-com with two people I liked. And it just is so much more emotionally resonant to me. The first time I watched it, it bowled me over in a way I wasn't expecting, and it stuck with me ever since. Well, let's hear Ethan's thoughts, and then I'll swoop in at the end and give my initial thoughts of how this movie came onto my radar. So, Ethan, how did you hear about the movie? How did you start watching it? Where are you at now with your journey with it? This is a movie that's actually kind of really important to me in a way that I think might make sense to unpack in a later portion of the show, because it's just a special sort of movie that's tied up in my heart in some specific ways. But, you know, like, was The Dissolve still around R.I.P. The Dissolve when this movie came out like I was tuned in like I know what movies are coming out and like oh there's a rom-com like we'll get that many of those these days and oh like it looks like it's got good production design I'll check it out and then like everybody else like Zosha like the entire world you turn on this movie and very quickly you're like no well give or take the prologue which we can talk about but <laughs> once it's in and really sort of increasingly and I think very gracefully the sort of seriousness with which this movie takes its characters and their live sneaks up on you in, in I think a really beautiful way and and similarly I was bowled over it was a very particular time in my life I had gotten married six months earlier I would have a kid about uh, I guess 10 months later um, and it just hit me yeah it just it hit me square in the heart and it's it stayed right there but I didn't actually rewatch it until last night and, and it hit me straight in the heart like if anything I think I had probably forgotten just how good it is so a lot to talk about yeah absolutely to echo I guess a bolt what you guys said 
it, it wasn't something that made a big splash when it came out, at least to the best of my 2015 recollection. Mm -hmm. uh, and then reading a little bit about, you know, the box office, I don't even think it made quite a, close to a million dollars. I'd have to check. But it wasn't like this barn burner thing that's, you know, that it came out and everyone was talking about. It kind of dropped. I had the same response as you guys. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, it, and I mean, and, and it was seemed to be very organic in the growth, too. I mean, it wasn't, I don't remember there being a single person who was like standing for the movie and everyone else catching up. It was kind of this mutual like, hey, this was way better than I thought. And that kind of started snowballing. And by 2021, we're like, this is one of the best of last decade, <laughs> at least internally at uh, Brightwell Darkroom. Yeah. I can say uh, on an anecdotal level, I've never seen anybody say that I can think of off the top of my head as I talk about how great it is uh, that this is not a good movie. Yeah. <laughs> I remember uh, probably 20 years ago, 15 years ago, there was an Entertainment Weekly cover story with Paul Rudd. Yeah. And the headline was just, we tried to find someone for the sake of it who doesn't like Paul Rudd and it's impossible, so here's your literally most likable man alive. <laughs> and I kind of feel like it's that with this movie. Like, how do you watch this? It'd be like, we have four out of ten. The other thing too, I mean, you know, obviously Jason Sudeikis has had a quite a past, past year and a half or so in many ways, but professionally as well. And I think that even just the lens on Jason Sudeikis and watching it through post-Ted Lasso, or it hits a little bit differently. Uh, Alison Brie has, you know, been in Glow since then. She's been in a lot of stuff as well. Um, so they've taken journeys since then, and I think that reflect back in interesting ways on it. It's true. When I was taking notes on this most recent rewatch, I kept trying to take notes on Alison Brie's performance, and they were just always like, she's exceptional, as always. Can't stop her. Yeah, she's wonderful. But I feel like the kind of sedacissance we're in is very, like... <laughs> It's kind of reframed who he is in the public. And I think that this movie, like, apologies to Mr. Lasso, but... Well, yeah, I mean, like, I think he's very good in Ted Lasso. I think there's a lot of heart in that show. But I do think that Sleeping With Other People is a definitive Sudeikis performance. Mm, interesting. Because he is charming question mark like you can kind of see between the lines but he does such a good job of telegraphing how charmingness is deflecting for his vulnerabilities and he's like funny but to a point where even the movie makes every effort to make it that everybody sees through his shtick yeah. they're just politely allowing it i was talking about it with a friend and she described it as this is like an eight octave performance you know he has the range and i think that it really just lets him go you know he just he has the range and Ted Lasso is about kind of bringing people into his shtick, whereas this one is about kind of unpacking his character and letting other people around him like really dissect him in that way. Zoshi, you said this for you is his definitive performance, and I think it will be astonishing if he ever gives a performance better than this. Mm -hmm. But the stuff that really I was thinking about during this movie last night, which like I never kind of like am firing off my thoughts on a movie when it's this fresh. If anything, this really demonstrates for me that Lasso is already his defining role. We are going to be in a before and an after period. And, and to the extent that already I just was like, Ted, why are you talking like that? Like, why'd you shave? <laughs> Where's the mustache, bro? And even even to the point that, like, there's a scene at the end when he is talking to Amanda Pete in her office. She's the boss and he's, like, backing out and, like, doing a little sort of shticky stuff. And I was like, oh, my God. Like, it looks like a Ted Lasso. Yeah. Even the framing was exactly like when he walks into Rebecca's office office in Ted Lasso, yeah. Mm. Good point. Technically, I guess, you know, the Ted Lasso commercials were actually made before this movie that launched the character. So the character was already in existence in a series of commercials for NBC's Premier League coverage. So, Well, and to the extent that when our colleague Travis Woods, who I, I'm sure it's okay to say works in the post-production world of that show, and <laughs> I remember he told us, he was like, oh yeah, Jason Sudeikis is uh, in the office because he's working on a, an expansion of those commercials. And I was like, oh God, for Apple Plus, they're making a spinoff of the commercials? Like, what are we doing here? And then, yeah, like Sleeping With Other People, it really 
well, very much unlike Sleeping With Other People, it hit the culture really hard and had a huge, yeah. sort of the opposite now that I say it. <laughs> <laughs> Sleeping With Other People hit my life, yeah. yes. Um, I'm a, I've been a Saturday Night Live every episode watcher since I was about 10 years old, mm-hmm. uh, for better or for worse. You know, for me, Jason Sudeikis, I knew he was my type of guy probably by the second episode of his first season. He could do any range of characters that would just tickle my funny bone endlessly. I remember hearing him on Mark Maron pre-Olivia Wilde, I don't know where that puts us, but he was such a normal dude, and you know, you listen to the Mark Maron stuff, and you got the looking for like this dirt on people, or looking for where, you know, what's the secret that makes your your comedy, and there was just nothing. He was such a solid dude the whole way through. It was so refreshing just to hear a guy who's like, yeah, no, it doesn't come from darkness. But also, I mean, if we're doing Sudeikis Corner, another thing worth mentioning is he is George Wendt's nephew from Cheers. That's that's Norm, right? Um, yeah. And so, like, yeah, absolutely. if you grew up with George Wendt around, like, you're, you are <laughs> in the sort of pipeline to be an NBC star. And and I look back at my SNL watching days when he was on there, and I, mm-hmm. I thought of him as sort of, like, the, I don't know, like, ultimate utility player. Like, what's that guy's thing? Like, Kyle Mooney, you want to see go off and do something. He was, like, a way better looking Phil Hartman. I mean, he, he could he could fill all the roles, but he I but he's guess. also super attractive and charming in a way that, I don't Phil know. Phil Hartman had such a specific uh, shtick. He was, he's the smarmy guy. He's Lionel Hutz. Yeah, it, it, was, it was a bad call. Let me redo that one. Chad, you're fired. <laughs> <laughs> How about it? What's a good utility player? I don't know. Jason Sudeikis. The answer is Jason Sudeikis. Beck Bennett, maybe. Okay, Jason Sudeikis is is a fantastic Jason Sudeikis. Well, he's the only one there is, and maybe that's what this movie helps me realize. Yeah. Well, because this is not sketch comedy energy. He is tremendous performance in this movie. It's very good. Yeah. It's got a, what does that just say, a, an eight-octave performance. eight-octave performance. I would say I struggled in a couple things. It's such a minor criticism, and I hate even putting it out there. Uh, there were a couple of times on the some of the dramatic scenes where I was like, oh, not quite. But for the most part, I thought that everything that he did was very believable. And the fact that mm-hmm. Leslie Headland wrote this movie, she did a very good job of deconstructing a whole bunch of things about that type of thing. But she manages to still be fairly empathetic about his character, even though the guy is clearly a manipulative womanizer. But she also doesn't let him off the hook. I mean, So she's got about three or four different scarves in the air, juggling-wise. And none of them ever land on the ground. And I think that that's quite an impressive feat just to frame what she did. I mean, this is her, I think, I believe her second film. Yeah, she did Bachelorette and then this one, I believe. Yeah, and she did Bachelorette. I know there was a, a thing we were reading yesterday where it said she had, you know, some of the experience on Bachelorette and some of the experience of that is actually what drove her to, or the depression that she felt after that movie and how it was handled and how it didn't make the splash and culturally came out right after Bridesmaids and it was a bad timing to set people's expectations. So she went into this depression and then out of that she creates this thing. She's like, well, let me make something a little more likable, but she still doesn't make it fully likable and that's what I like about it. Well, let's talk about Bachelorette. Let's talk about that for a second because I, I only remember that she went from this to Russian Doll yeah. and as of last night I could not remember what led up to this. That is a movie that is like, that's a tough one. That's a tough sit. Well, so it's, it's, it's interesting to see that she did really modulate that here, but she didn't abandon it. Like, there's no absolute way in any possible world that movie is going to be like a crossover phenomenon. And this one is much closer to something that could jump over. It's got the bones of a traditional movie. Mm-hmm. This one could have, yeah. It's important to uh, get into a little bit more of the specifics about the movie. So we have the IMDb summary. Does anyone else want to fill in the bones? I mean, one thing I would just suggest as a starting point is to talk about a little bit of just the cast. Yeah, it's stacked. It's got an amazing cast. I believe it was amazing in 2015, but 2021 version of all these people. It's amazing all the people that are in this film. Every time someone showed up last night, I was like, oh yeah, this is wonderful. Yeah, like so many of the bit parts are filled out. Alison Bree's character is named Lainey and Adam Scott plays her. Oh my God 
long-time oh. cheating partner, you know, for 10 years or so. She's been cheating with the same guy because she just can't get enough of him. And The same guy 16 times, very specifically. Yeah. <laughs> There's a scene where she's explaining to her boyfriend about how she cheated 16 times. And yes. he's like, I don't even know 16 guys. Yes. It's like an incredible, a small performance from Adam Brody. Wonderful scene. I, when I was watching that last night, I, my interpretation of that moment is Adam Brody is my deep read of that performance. Is that <laughs> he hears this and he goes, okay, well, my relationship's over, but this is my closer moment. And he like launches into it. He's like, I saw Closer five years ago. I don't really remember it, but I think people say stuff like this. And it's really intense. And if you look at it that way, it's a delightful little vignette. <laughs> Often, if I if a scene is especially funny, I only do this with comedies for some reason. Mm -hmm. If something's especially funny, I will right then. I will stop the movie and go back and rewatch it. I, so I did that twice last night. That was one of them. Particularly the line, which is, I'm, you know, sorry to have an audio file of me saying this now, but when he's like, "Whose juices am I tasting?" That's exactly uh, the such kind a beautiful, of thing I was hilarious line. Because that, yeah, that sounds like a guy trying to do a Clive Owen and closer thing, which I hadn't connected until Ethan pointed it out. But yes, and it's so funny coming from him. And then you know, his big like, "I'm going to do a big freak out," and so he wads up a napkin and throws it. It's like, yeah, that's not wonderful energy there. Yeah, I think this is a movie that has, like, it has the feel of people kind of riffing and improving, but it's really just that the chemistry between basically any scene partner is just incredible. That's true. Yeah. Like, Jake has these two friends, Xander and Naomi, they're married, and it's Jason Manzukis and Andrea Savage. And they just slot right in. Like, so good. I mean, how impossible is it to say that Jason Manzukis just slots right in with his energy? But like, you completely believe not only their friendship to him, but their relationship to each other and just like how the whole world kind of fills out. I would like to say, though, about, about the Manzukis of it all, because I was realizing last night right at the end what a linchpin of that movie that dynamic is. Mm -hmm. Because it feels like that classic thing of like, we'll just throw them in there. They'll throw off some one-liners. Yeah, comic relief. Yeah. And that's the Apatow thing of like, we'll just let him riff and we'll, we'll cut in a couple of them. And for me, I'm like, Oof, like I love Manzoukas. And he does slot in because if you've ever listened to any of his podcast appearances, like, good God, like what a sort of fantasy best friend to just sort of like hang out and shoot the shit with Jason Palmer. By the end, and this is what really knocked me over, and I had forgotten this element, but once I remembered, I was like, right, this is, this is the thing for me. When they say I love you to each other at the very end before it cuts to black, I get tears in my eyes because by that point, I buy it. They have been secretly Aww. around the margins, and there's a reason <laughs> they get the whole closing credits. Mm. Yeah. Is they've been sneaking around behind the margins, building this sort of shadow <laughs> dynamic, and they like razz each other. But then the whole end of the movie is just those two. And it's almost, I guess, like uh, in When Harry Met Sally, the couples that are, mm -hmm. are the framing devices, like they're just, it's almost like they are our like flash forward. This is the movie's thesis. Like, you know, a married couple can have this dynamic and they can razz each other and they can laugh. And that's their love language to use a, what has become a very loaded term, but I, I do think is genuinely useful. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then I just get the sense these performers have probably known each other 25 years. Yeah. Have done this a lot. And when they say, I love you, it is to me shockingly intimate. <laughs> Go look at the scene, people who think I'm overselling <laughs> this. Uh, they say it, they kiss, and it cuts to black. And I'm like, oh, that's a married couple. Okay. I hope they have a good night. Like, yeah. <laughs> Seeing this in a vacuum it's very easy to just be like oh yeah they're just a real married couple that got invited to do a comedy married couple yeah. sure why not <laughs> there's a scene so Lainey and Jake they 
lost their virginities to each other in college. That was like the only night they met. And then they kind of reconnected in adulthood 10 years later. And the first date that Jake takes Lainey on, for some reason, Xander and Naomi are there. And they're basically just kind of razzing Jake. But <laughs> Lainey is clearly uncomfortable and not super into it and not really sure what the vibe is already. Manzuka's character, I'm already forgetting, and, and Jake have just uh, sold their their app or sold their startup or something. So they're celebrating and Lainey is just kind of there. Yeah, and she's there. He didn't, I guess, yeah, Jake didn't know it was a date and Lainey is like, this is a weird vibe. But as soon as she kind of dips and Jake goes to see what's up with her, like it just leaves us on Xander and Naomi who are just like, she's amazing, which is like Mm -hmm. such a very real reaction to meeting like your buddy's like possible girlfriend, new friend, and just kind of being like, yeah, no, nothing about that was probably comfortable for her to meet, but like, I got a great vibe off of her. Can't wait to have her around more. <laughs> right off that. This movie is about two incredibly abrasive people. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of crucial that if they are almost our perspective characters, I'm mean, just going to, this is going to be a podcast about this relationship if I'm not careful. <laughs> they're, the, they're the Greek chorus. Well, almost. And then we, we meet Lainey doing some pretty unpleasant stuff. She's not unpleasant. You know, it's, it's a pretty non-judgmental movie. But probably a segment of the audience needs a very appealing character to say, she's amazing. And then you almost implicitly have buy-in mm-hmm. on the journey. Like, oh, well, you know, my favorite character in the movie says she's amazing. Okay, yeah. we'll follow her. And I also think that's, like, I mean, a key just on, you know, without going too much into them as actors, just the immense likability in most people's minds for Jason Sudeikis and Alison Brie. Yeah. I think that that go- goes a long way just even just before you even have them say words to say, okay, I'm on board until they give me reason not to be instead of kind of vice versa. Especially at that time, it's, oh, the SNL guy, the community girl, and the Parks and Rec guy is the bad guy? Yeah, let's see that. Sure. As a way of walking through the plot a little bit more linearly, I would just say I, I felt a moment when I realized this was a different movie than I thought it was going to be, and I'm just wondering if it was a similar moment. When they started to treat what was actually going on as what was actually going on, instead of like cute romantic comedy world where they're both just a little, you know, have commitment issues, you know, in very generic self-help terms, all of a sudden it becomes clear these people have sexual addiction issues. When it takes that step into there, that's when I was like, oh, this is going to go here. And then, you know, it stays on that journey for the rest of the way, but it never loses the comedy. It's not like a gear shift kind of a thing necessarily. But once it takes that extra step depth like you, you don't get that for all the, the glory and wonderness of, uh, which is not a word, uh, of When Harry Met Sally. They cover plenty of topical relevant issues to 1987 or whatever and still somewhat today. This movie certainly borrows heavily from it. I know there was uh, uh, the quote that our producer sent around where Alessa Hedlund said, this is When Harry Met Sally with assholes. Further in that same interview, she said something to the effect of, basically in all my movies, so Bachelorette included, and maybe she didn't get the mix quite the same. But she said, I I make the villains the heroes. So she basically took two characters who, on paper, if you were to just describe them and not assign actors to them, would read as, you know, somewhat shitty people just on paper at the beginning. And then she spends the whole movie filling out the whole picture about why they're the way they are, the struggles they've had to grow in various ways. Of course, it's not rocket science to see why this would appeal to a therapist's brain. But just kind of the emotional arc that they both go on is both very believable, very realistic, and then still manages to put a nice cherry on top at the very end, both through their own journey they need, but then also through the kiss Ethan's argument at the end. Yeah, I mean, the movie covers so much ground for just like 101 minutes or whatever it is. Absolutely. Constantly, you know, we're moving through at least a year of these people's lives and it never once feels out of sorts or that way where you're like, well, that seemed a little fast or a little slow. Like it really just, you are with it the entire time. It's such a deft 
script. I mean, more than anything else, I think it's just like an incredibly tight screenplay. Incredible and the story from there is just able to kind of add more and more emotional depth with each new actor who's able to just knock it out of the park. Yeah. The only unbelievable thing I found in the entire movie, top to bottom, was just, just the wig that Jason had to wear for his being a young guy scenes. <laughs> oh my gosh. One of the worst wigs I've ever seen. <laughs> Zosha just touched on something that, that I wanted to touch on too. Yes which is the movie that, that this really reminded me of is Jerry Maguire by the end. Hmm, interesting. Interesting. Unpack it. Well, it doesn't have a traditional three-act sort of arc. It covers a lot of time. It follows a relationship that doesn't follow the sort of convenient arc. And that's true of When Harry Met Sally as well. It's got this unwieldy shape. Like, it would be hard to write a logline for this movie because it's just about how life moves and it's about how life feels. And, mm -hmm. you know, there's emotional movements that don't follow the... My, MFA grad brain says fry tag diagram, fry tag diagram <laughs> of rising action and then denouement. I mean, this movie is sort of trucking along in neutral and then there's a giant brawl and then it's over. <laughs> and it's perfect. I mean, you know, there's there's this conventional wisdom, like three-act structure, it exists for a reason, but if you're a talented storyteller, you, you got a much wider berth and oh. she takes advantage of it. I think there's a Jerry Maguire Easter egg in this ending. <laughs> That's going to seal my theory. I'll make my case. I'll make my case. Jason Munzakis is the little b-boy. Yeah. Well, fine. Then that's part of the thesis too now. You just gave me extra. <laughs> at, at the end, Jake calls Lainey from jail or the police station and he's doing this whole big riff. He's calling her on the phone and he's going on his big speech and what does Renee Zellweger say? Shut up, shut up, you had me at hello. And what does Lainey say? Keep talking, keep talking. So there it is. My smoking gun <laughs> is a Jerry Maguire riff. That says the opposite thing. <laughs> Do you think that's a direct connection or is it an Ethan connection? The moment that it connected for me is Jerry Maguire also hinges on the possibility of Renee Zellweger leaving and they mm. rush into a marriage. And so there's there's a moving truck scene, that's true. which is exactly like this one. And so it, it, it almost does mm. feel like it's intentional. I mean, not intentionally. This movie's nothing like yeah. Jerry Maguire, but there's a moving truck scene. And in this one, she goes away. And then Jerry Maguire, they say, no, let's get married. And it ends up in a completely opposite direction. And this is a Jerry Maguire remake, the end. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I saw that in the theater. During some snowstorm 20 years ago, I don't, all I remember is every Everything was closed and we could get to the theater. That was showing. So I watched it. I watched it with my, with my family, which sounds weird. I'm like, my family of origin. But as you're talking through it, I do remember that similar feeling. It's like, oh, this is going to be one of those adult movies where they like, it's ambiguous in the Indian. And I really thought it might end up in that place. Um, so it, the, similar feelings I had for this one. And, and I would just say, too, flashing red light, spoiler alert for anyone that doesn't want to know the ending. I would just say the ending, even last night, even knowing how it ended, because I'd seen it a few years ago, I didn't fully remember. And I was kind of convinced that he was going to end up with another wonderful actor who we have not mentioned at all yet, uh, Amanda Peet. I, I thought the journey was that they were making each other better people and ending up with someone else. I love that idea. I love when movies do that. And I love that idea, too. And I love that, too. But then I also didn't know how much I really just needed these two particular people. I think kind of because of the actors they were. And uh, some of the stuff that they developed throughout the movie chemistry-wise, I did find that, you know, storytelling part of my brain, despite the cynicalness of it at times, I wanted them to end up together. And they did it in a way that somehow wasn't cheesy, which is like, okay, how are they going to get them there? But I really it had it ended with the bed scene of them realizing, like, yeah, we're in love with each other. Uh, and then we decided to be apart forever and use that love to fuel other relationships. That would have been an amazing ending. It would have been a ballsy ending. I think it would have violated the compact that this movie is making with the audience. <laughs> <laughs> if you're going to do a movie like that, I think the audience should probably be able to suss out from some clues at the beginning like this is gonna go that direction and and if you had taken us through all of this and then kept them apart to say oh they made each other better people like people would have burned the movie theater down <laughs> <laughs> this is a beautiful romance between i'm just i'm interested to hear chad that you thought it was was building to a different point 
Yeah. Just because it was doing enough things slightly differently from the kind of formulaic stuff I was expecting that I thought, yeah, there, there's a good chance here that this ends up with one of those kind of like sad happy endings. That's my sweet spot. I feel like it's interesting that you thought that they wouldn't end up together because I think this movie is a little more explicit than even when Harry met Sally is. And I think that's mostly a, a matter of generational. Like this movie explicitly is like, it's not that men and women can't be friends. It's that these people are not friends. <laughs> Both when Harry met Sally and sleeping with other people are making that case. And I think sleeping with other people is just a little bit more explicitly like, no, they're in love with each other. They're just two dum-dums who have to figure out how, what that means. And Which is obviously a big formula. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a big formula. I think that just like, at least for me as like a young bi girl who put off seeing When Harry Met Sally for a really long time because a bunch of people kept telling me men and women can't be friends. And I was like, well, <laughs> then I can't be friends with literally anybody. I think you need to calm down. <laughs> But this movie is a nice little, like, no, no, no. Like, they very eloquently, Jake and Lainey have each other's numbers in just an intuitive way. Like, I think the concept of soulmates is often used to be, like, one person for your whole life. But I think if you look at it, it's just, like, there are people who you will naturally connect with better. And Jake and Lainey are an example of two people who are soulmates in that way. They can just intuitively get each other and kind of intuitively crack each other open in a way that nobody else does. And also it's a nice little, from a story perspective, it's a nice little way to kind of snake around their respective issues, which is that, you know, she needs somebody to kind of both validate how she's feeling, but also help her stay present and keep her away from Dr. Matthew Sobacek, Adam Scott's <laughs> boring yeah. doctor character. Yeah, very specific name. And then, you know, he needs somebody who he can want to be around or kind of owe an emotional intimacy to that he's not afraid of. And the fact that they kind of both lure that out of the other person is just kind of, I mean, story-wise, it's perfection. But, like, to be able to watch that, it's just <laughs> incredible. Well, it gives me a chance to say one of my favorite uh, Carl Jung quotes that I, I just i have always loved. Flex. The meeting of two personalities is like the... Uh... Yeah. <laughs> I'll just guess that. And you can look it up like something like the media of two personalities, like the contact of two chemical substances. Uh -huh. If there's any reaction at all, both are transformed. Specifically them meeting each other and having these interactions, not necessarily when they lost their virginity to each other in the one night stand. So that was a little piece of that. But when they meet again, I think at that meeting and he decides to approach her, I'm not sure if we've said they, they actually meet up again the 10 years later, 12 years later at a sex addicts meeting. Mm -hmm. And then he approaches her outside. Uh, I'm not sure, did she see him in that meeting? She doesn't see him. He just sees her leave because okay. she gets a text from Dr. Matthew Sovacek and then he follows her out and is kind of like, well, well, well. So I just want to loop back on something that Zosha said um, before we get to like the sex addict stuff of it all, which is Zosha, you mentioned you identify as, as bisexual and something that pinged for me, it like finally something fell into place is your sexuality now. <laughs> Something that was kind of like a, a mosquito in my ear last night was, is this movie essentially Obama era? It is. It's hard for me not to see movies that came out in late 2015 as somehow I'm looking for the predictions and the predictive elements. But when you said that, I couldn't put my finger on it last night, but this is explicitly a riff on kind of the ultimate gender and sexuality essentialist text. It was fascinating to me that you said that about when Harry met Sally is that as a bisexual person, kind of the touchstone of heterosexual media made you feel alienated. And, and so is this an Obama era movie? Oh, I should say. The idea of it made Yeah, I was going to say, the idea of it made you feel <laughs> Oh yeah, no, oh no, of course, of course. <laughs> Once yeah. I yeah, watched yeah, yeah. it, I was like, wow, this is great. This is so smart. <laughs> 
fantastic. And it's and it's a product of its time in a lot of ways, and as this one then must be. And if what she is saying is, I am going to take the ultimate gender and sexuality essentialist, which it is not, but for the sake of my point, let me say that it is. It's a wonderful <laughs> movie. I love it. But it is about, can men and women be friends without wanting to fuck each other as men and women? We have only, in the past few years, really... I don't want to make everything about Donald Trump, but... Um, and now I'm going to. I said that with a silly voice because I'm, I'm going to now. The past few years have forced a lot of really good and productive uh, conversations and, and sort of shuffling the deck in our cultural consciousness. And I do wonder if this movie would be greeted a little differently in 2021 rather than, than 2015. And I don't know the answer because this is me giving birth to a thought <laughs> in real time that I just, Zosha really helped me clarify something that was nagging at me last night. It definitely seems like a different era in a way that I don't think six years ago always feels like a completely different era. That has got to have a lot to do with just how much the world changed. Donald Trump would have just been emerging as a viable contender. This movie was hitting VOD in January 2016. Which okay, so he was entirely on the stage at that mm-hmm. point. And... Those memories are on top of each other for me. It's <laughs> yes. like oh, wow. Two things I was doing on, on that couch in that apartment that year are watch Sleeping with Other People. <laughs> well, genuinely, I mean, it's a very, it's a specific slice of time that, that's attached to a geographic space. Yeah. yeah. You have no way of knowing when you're making a movie like this, obviously. But by the time the movie gets made and into theaters or VOD or whatever, it's such a dramatic flip that I think anything now released right on the cusp of 2016 is going to have this weird flavor to it of, I think Obama's a good word for that. It feels like an Obama-era movie. That's interesting, because I guess I consider a lot of these, I know we've been classifying it as a rom-com, but it as most movies do it kind of touches on a lot of different genres and it feels very like adult contemporary or something (laughs) yeah a lot of those like adult contemporary dramas that we don't get a ton of anymore no the mid-budget adult drama is the term you see search that term on twitter you're going to see 500 tweets a day saying where's the mid-budget adult drama yes exactly thank you (laughs) but in this case with sprinklings of a certain kind of humor that's often not in those types of movies (laughs) well chad you said we can argue about genre this movie it's a (laughs) rom-com let's not let's not make it sound like this is a drama this is a romantic comedy operating at a very high level yeah okay okay a mid-budget adult rom-drom with gross humor in time sure often (laughs) exists kind of outside of time in that way where it's such a encapsulation of both the time it was made which as you're saying is obama era but weirdly does not strike me as that it's interesting i guess to connect it to pre-trump era for me because it feels like a very prescient thought on why people do or don't have sex like the various reasons that one might and you get a lot of different sex in this movie and you know none of it is between the main romantic couple we don't actually see their sex scene at all and we see a lot of different urges that kind of get satisfied in this way (laughs) not to be like this movie was so ahead of its time it's incredible but it is a conversation that a lot of circles were having before that broke out to the main zeitgeist with the current wave of me too sure i did not mean to imply by any means that these conversations were starting with with donald trump no no no, of course not well no just just to (laughs) say these are conversations that were essential that were happening everywhere but that was the the sort of seismic event that that broke them through and i mean who would have predicted when this guy you know, emerged as a candidate. The term non-binary is going to be in everybody's mouth in five years. Yeah. Didn't want to imply that this was a new thing, of course. <laughs> no, but I think that you're correct that kind of before that time, typically if you saw something discussing the subject matter of sex and why people do it, it was a little more like prescriptive or even kind of pedantic about it. And I think this one just, again, to come back to it's just a fantastic script, it's 
incredibly broad in how specific its story is and how deeply rooted it is in the actual characters that we are studying here. Mm -hmm. But within that, it kind of has this broad range of here's why they do a bunch of different things, but also here's why we all might do a bunch of different things. Yeah. And I think that that kind of omniscient empathy that I was talking about at the beginning where it's like, there's not a lot of judgment on any of these people. I, I love that. She really seems to love the characters, that love and empathy for the characters. If that comes through in a movie, you can make it about almost anything and I'm probably going to find a way into it. But I think there's buckets of that in this one and I, you know, it's one of the things I love about it. I had almost that exact thought last night. This movie is tonally a little all over the place in some respects. Oh, absolutely, yeah. But what it has that no other rom-com has is the patience and the subtlety of tone that she brings to the we are in love with each other scene phenomenal scene. that scene that scene breathes pg-13 r-rated style i've been holding some of my curses but i'm gonna use one <laughs> that scene breathes like a motherfucker <laughs> like i just feel like she said to them on that day like guys we're gonna go through this if this is half an hour of the movie that's what it is just find it because there's so much sort of silence and breathing and their performances are so, so... I'm whispering, it's an audio medium. <laughs> their performances are so, so precise and small, and that's where I think the directorial voice of this movie really explodes mm -hmm. through. I'm not going to plug my own <laughs> movie, so I'm not saying the title. I, I have directed a movie that is out there if you want to find it. And having directed scenes of, of emotional sort of breath and intimacy like that, it requires an incredible command of tone that I didn't have. Leslie Hedlund... <laughs> That's the calling card moment for her, for me, aside from the other huge moment that we shouldn't wait too long to get to, because it's what everyone's waiting to hear us talk about. Yeah, don't worry, we didn't forget about the, the best part of the whole movie. So. <laughs> so to circle back around to what I was about to say, some of the what's possible in 1987, you know, 1987 versus 2015. When Harry Met Sally, you know, it's, it's not going to be breaking news to anybody. Uh, it's one of my favorite movies. I mean, I just love that movie. But for a movie that's about can two people have sex, there is no, like, zero erotic anything in there. There is zero, like, sexual, sexual stuff. It's very hard for me to even imagine <laughs> Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan like in any of these I'm sorry to everyone who's having to make this audio picture right now doing any of the things that these characters do but the important thing I think she totally tracks some of the stuff to some of the beats but it still hits some of the same beats which is the diner scene in When Harry Met Sally the orgasm scene the one that everyone always quotes when they quote it I, I think it's one of the least interesting scenes in the whole movie but it's the it's fairly iconic hot take uh, yeah hot take next week's podcast <laughs> yeah. but the part that I would say just in terms of tracking and holding like kind of a plot momentum, it's kind of this shocking thing that's happening that's, you know, outlandish. The bottle scene, I'll call it, uh, with uh, Jake and Lainey. It's where Jake teaches Lainey <laughs> to masturbate using a bottle. Um, but there's various things where she keeps hitting these Efron-esque beats, but she does it in a very updated way. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's just interesting to track the difference between like when Harry Met Sally can do a lot more than like, you know, the apartment could do in 1960. I have no idea. We'll just, I guess, be doing full-on porn podcasts in 20 years because all movies will just be porn at that point. Don't know. <laughs> Travis is about to burst through the wall like the Kool-Aid, man. We're doing what? <laughs> I think that, weirdly, there's, like, two scenes in this whole movie that don't work for me. Oh, cool. And one of them is, like, the secondary introduction to Jason Sudeikis' character as an adult where he's, like, chasing his girlfriend down the street and trying to basically gaslight her into thinking that it's fine that he cheated. And she doesn't buy it. And I think that what it does establish is that, like, He's kind of a chatterbox. He's got some sort of smarmy charm to him and women don't really care. <laughs> but I think the other scene is the bottle scene, which mm -hmm. doesn't work because I don't want to, I mean, we don't have to get too into this, but like, that's not how masturbation works for people <laughs> with clitorises. Like it would make- Oh, it's not the DJ <laughs> method always for everybody. The dirty DJ. <laughs> the dirty DJ, that's fine. Do what you want, scratch away. But like- 
when he's talking about being able to reach your own cervix, that's really hard. Like, <laughs> like it makes I more no sense. I have no idea. No, no, no. Right Hear now. me out. It makes more sense in the movie if he's teaching her how to have other people finger her because later she has Captain Iowa. She, like, shows him the technique and he's offended. But we never actually get a payoff in the story of her having her own, like, orgasm by herself using his methods yeah no it def- i thought that scene was coming I, it was what i thought oh, <laughs> <laughs> oops i thought at the end in a romantic comedy that was built like this one they could have a scene where that's how she remembers that she misses him <laughs> so she <laughs> tries she tries this for the first time she's like oh he taught me that though i did like the way that they used it as like hey you let this guy do it that was our thing and she's like we don't have a thing we're not having sex no i think actually it's placed like the role of the scene in the movie makes a lot of sense because even it's like a great little beat where she says like i got into med school and he's like you didn't tell me and it's kind of like you get it you start to get it yeah and then you know later it does come up and he's like kind of a turd about it but it also prompts him to like really go for asking out Paula, who's Amanda Pete's character, for real. It just needs, like, another pass, but that's it. That's my only two complaints about this entire movie, which is otherwise perfect. Yeah, according to the article that our producer sent around, though, there was a thing in there about how Leslie Headland literally said, watching Jason Sudeikis perform that scene for the first time, oh my god, I'm gonna be so rich. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Leslie. We're trying. Yeah, it didn't work. And the, the Twitter response, according again to her, I was, uh, apparently that was, that, that scene made quite the rounds and was quite a popular scene. Oh, I'm sure. I would be so curious to see what would happen if someone put out a, like, Ted Lasso did what, you know, and did a thing and put it up, like, in 2021, how that would ring with, again, with the new Jason Sudeikis image. Don't speak that into the universe, man. We just had the finale. We were almost <laughs> at the clear. Speaking of cervixes real quick. Yes. Let's go into it. My wife is in a, uh, a... <laughs> Don't... <laughs> I, my wife is a nurse midwife, which means that she delivers babies every day sometimes. When, okay. you know, it's been a pandemic. There's kind of been, you can track the sort of moods of the pandemic based on uh, sort of peaks and valleys in her work. Birth rates, yeah, absolutely. No, sincerely. <laughs> and she was sitting there with me. She's seen the movie before. I, I had watched most of it and she came in halfway through and just sort of sat quietly. And then at the very end, when uh, Sobachek's wife says... And he's going to deliver the baby himself. Oh, I did love that part. My wife just reflexively and unconsciously goes, ugh. ugh. That's exactly what I did. <laughs> right. Like, not to judge, but ugh. The line could just brush you by, but it's just good to have from the nurse midwife perspective. <laughs> ugh. I mean, also the comedic moment of him being arrested and her saying, like, when he's yelling out, I'm her doctor, as he's being, it's a wonderful little orchestration. Any kind of what I call, I don't know if it's a term, comedy of accumulation, where little kind of things stack on top of each other that are just a little bit funny until just pretty soon it's just it's one of those moments where like all these little cards are paying off right at the same time in this one little near the end thing before the real ending of things which is you know very emotionally satisfying so it's a good term man if it's not a term you should use it. comedy of accumulation <laughs> yeah but i mean do you guys know what i mean by that phrase yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Well, sure. it's, it's a great it's term planted payoff i think is really plant payoff yeah no it's very evocative and okay perfect. well i then i will definitely put that in my next essay and claim full credit <laughs> for it hey let's let's get to one of the most wonderful scenes uh which is i'll just say david bowie modern love molly <laughs> child's birthday party ethan what would you like to say about that moment well, no, okay, fine. Zosha, would you like to walk us through that moment real quick? Because, sure. Well, because my stuff is all interpretation. I don't want to talk for the next 15 minutes. So. Jake and Lainey coming off like an all-night hang where they've kind of acknowledged that they have feelings for each other but they don't want to act on them, decide to take Molly and go to Xander and Naomi's kids' birthday party. 
and they show up right at the peak. <laughs> they are like they've clearly stopped at like a New York gift shop for gifts for random crap for the kid. And then all the kids are kind of screaming and Lainey just immediately goes into like kindergarten teacher mode and like pretty much the delivery of every single line in this scene is perfect. And I couldn't do it justice. But, you know, she walks over and like hands her phone to Naomi and is just like put on track seven of my workout playlist and is like so <laughs> stoked and like so confident. And then she just proceeds to basically like take the kids to dance to David Bowie's Modern Love. And she like takes off her shirt. She's wearing like a bikini top and uh, she's just dancing around still very high. Camera starts moving really slowly, but then eventually it like pans out. It's kind of like the kids are just like kind of giggling at her because she's just like clearly lost in the sauce, completely in the flow of it and just dancing by herself. And then all the kids, you know, Jake comes over and basically gets the kids to dance by themselves and they dance together. How'd I do? You did terrific. That was fact <laughs> that was factually everything that I believe happened, yes. I don't think you got anything wrong. In my mind that that scene soared. Uh, I look for I look for the takeoff points in movies, the moments of transcendence, the little glimmers of whatever. And that was just a big huge moment of wonderfulness in my life. So, Ethan, what did you think about that moment and your thoughts? I mean, God, man, like we put this movie in the best of the decade list because of this scene. Like, let's cut the shit. Like <laughs> For me, this is a scene with gravitational force, and some of it is, is purely personal. I do think she she creates effects with this scene that are, I believe, sublime. You guys have both edited me before. I have a lot of interest in the idea that art can break through and touch the sublime. But for me, the scene is, it's very important to me personally in a way that I don't know that I've like ever talked about. I think I like told Chad that it was, and he was like, write an essay, and I was like, no. <laughs> I mean, I said that to everything, so. You're all going to get the, the pitch right now. Um, and it, it is just sort of like, this is this is me trying to like give form to, to thoughts that have just been sort of amorphous for five years, so bear with me. When I first saw this movie, I had recently lost about like 60 or 80 pounds. And there's so many different ways to come at this, but I will just say that the scene where Lainey says, two minutes ago I accepted my body for the first time, and tears sprang to my eyes. Aww. Because a lot of my own sort of growth in my 20s, you know, my body changed in, in various ways at, at different points to do with choices that I made, um, which is, you know, talking about my, my body image, um, but, you know, there's there's certain sort of uh, sensitivities you want to be careful of. So this is just, just a personal experience. Um, I was not in a good place, sort of mentally, psychologically, and, and my body was reflecting that. Um, for me, that's what it, that was the net of it, um, is that I had what I, what I would later identify was a pretty significant, I think, disconnect between my mind and my body. My Pet cemetery piece is all, is all about sort of the mind-body divide. Uh, this is all stuff that was just sort of, was, was barely forming for me at that time. I do think this movie is, is very much about, as I, as I say, the mind-body connection, and, and our colleague Spencer Williams uh, last night, I got I got confused in the Slack conversation about this podcast, and we were talking about two movies at once, Sleeping with Other People and Sleepaway Camp. And I thought Spencer had called this a trans classic. And I said, yeah, I, 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 you know, that makes sense. I'll get there. Um, and Spencer laughed at me. And Spencer said that this, this movie is explicitly cisgender. But I do think it's about dysphoria to do with the mind-body disconnect. Who are the other people of the title? They are people who are not you. Mm -hmm. You are sleeping with other people because it is too painful to sleep with yourself. Jake has a line where he says... Um, a fantastic throwaway line, which is not a throwaway line. It's not. It's the key to the movie. <laughs> uh, 
where he says something to the effect of, I don't want to introduce people to myself because I don't like that guy too much. So this is a movie about sleeping with other people mm -hmm. because being in your body and being your mind living in your physical form is much too painful. Mm. This is something that is, is very meaningful to me. Shortly after uh, the character of Sobacek has penetrated the character of Lainey, oh, the character geez. of Lainey has a comment on the feeling of penetration and the sensation that that causes her. <laughs> she says, this is what I've been waiting for. This, this exact moment in the sexual congress experience. <laughs> Jake has a line later about like, it's different. You're being penetrated. I'm penetrating. Again, like a throwaway line, but it is about the fact that these people cannot stand to be in their bodies. And so they need to either put their body in someone else's or have another body inside theirs. And so that's, that's for me where this is about some form of body dysphoria and mind body connection and I will cry if I am not careful. What does Lainey say at the end? Let me have this, guys. I'm never going to write this essay. <laughs> Sorry, the monologue. She walks into that room and this is the moment the movie turns on. This is the gravitational force scene when Chad posted a gif of this scene or gif if you're weird. Last night, <laughs> um, everybody exploded. And the moment is when she has achieved transcendence, let's say. It's a transcendence essay yeah. now. She has accepted her body, which we know is the journey that both these people have been on. And then, bang, Leslie <laughs> Headland knows that she has in her back pocket the greatest scene <laughs> of that decade. The greatest scene of a decade that included, not to get personal about it, the master and inherent vice and phantom thread. This is better than anything in any of those piece of shit movies. <laughs> Leslie Headland creates this effect. Zosha mentioned it, where she is speed ramping during Lainey's dance, and you are opening out to encompass the other characters, and she's speed ramping in a way that doesn't seem to follow any particular logic. If you don't know, speed ramping is referring to when uh, the picture speeds up or slows down, fast motion, slow motion. It's kind of the Zack Snyder effect. Mm -hmm. Zack Snyder likes to use moments where characters are in very intense fast motion and then very slow motion, and he uses it for a certain effect. It's got a visceral effect. Like you can feel it in your body as you're watching. What Hedlund is doing in this scene is it's not quite following her movements, Alison Brie Laney's movements, it's not quite following the song. It's following the kind of emotional logic of, of almost Alison Brie's performance. Mm. I wouldn't be surprised now that I think about it. If Hedlund, she sat there in the editing room. These are the things people, they just sort of skim by, by viewers. But Hedlund sat there in the editing room for probably a week with the editor saying, all right, right here, this part, let's make that a little faster, too fast, back it off. No, actually, it's better slow. Because that scene, I got to go back and look at it again. The way... It's, it's very ambiguous. Oh, I watched it five times last night. <laughs> well, then you tell me. I didn't detect any rhythm to that speed ramping except that Leslie Hedlund said, this is exactly the rhythm of speed ramping that is going to yield me the greatest scene of the decade. Yeah, I mean, I'm getting chills here and you talk about it and that's not even watching it. All right, gavel down. I'm done. <laughs> I want to throw to Zosha too to just she took us through the factual aspects, um, but I want to hear any kind of emotional reaction. How did that scene hit for you? I guess is how the kids would say. I mean, I really do love that scene. I feel like it's kind of a great encapsulation of the movie in that it's balancing so many tones and it's doing it without everyone's being judgy of people. You know, the fact that we're watching her dance high and trying to get kids to dance with her. It doesn't end up feeling like a cringe fest or it's not very like sexualized. It's just exactly what Ethan's saying. Like she's completely in her body. She's in the flow. She's in that place that we all wish we were all the time. And I think that, you know, even when it cuts to the parents or like Xander and Naomi watching and they're not even mad, they're not sad. They're just like, God, 
I miss drugs. Like, why don't we do drugs? <laughs> like, this is what you want. This is what we should be doing. If only we didn't have kids. <laughs> that that is kind of the only cut that does kind of turn this into a conventional comedy beat. Is yeah, is you are you're you're in the high person experience, and then you cut to the outside. But it also reminds you that this is happening in public in a in a very uh, good way. Yeah. Well, often what that moment will be is is you're in the person's euphoria. Since as I said, this is I think this is a movie about dysphoria. Mm-hmm. And that scene is the euphoria. In Wolf of Wall Street, you cut out and they're like jellyfish on the floor. In this scene, you're just you're just seeing it from an external perspective. And you're like, oh, that's what euphoria looks like from over there. All right. mm-hmm. yeah. I will say that for myself, that's not like when I think of this movie, that's not like the scene for me. Like I think. Oh, really? Yeah. I was actually surprised to hear you guys talk about it as wow. much. Okay. This might be a white dad's thing. <laughs> <laughs> I really do think that, like, the scene of the movie, in fact, this is the scene that my best friend and I will refer to when we just say, like, the scene off the bat, is when Lainey comes back after seeing Dr. Sobacek at a party where he's basically just been, like, a complete turd and inserted a lot of, like, here's my wife. She's pregnant. I didn't tell you any of this. And, like, honestly, just to stop on that scene for a second, a lesser movie would constantly be cutting to Lainey's reactions and kind of these, like, micro, like, oh, I'm so hurt. But the camera there just swirls and you never see Alison Bree's face when these beats hit. Like, it's just completely mm. in kind of the the public party atmosphere. And it's just perfect because you don't have to see her react in the moment because she's not letting herself react in the moment. She excuses herself and goes to the bathroom and, like, immediately calls Jake, who doesn't answer. <laughs> um, and then after the party, she goes to Jake's house and waits for him because he's been on a date. And he, he goes upstairs. Again, we don't see them talk about the night, but we infer that she's told him somewhere along the steps, which is something I love when movies don't have people hold off having conversations until we can see them. But once he's up there, they just kind of lie on the bed and they're like incredibly intimate just like holding each other and she kind of backs up and they talk about we're in love with each other and like Jason Sudeikis's wordless performance like this is what I'm talking about when I say like this is the definitive Sudeikis performance is that like he can completely channel a movie in just you know like some sad head nods and kind of like head shakes as they kind of acknowledge that they're too afraid still to act on these feelings with each other and they basically just did say I love you for free and they kind of pretend as if that's yeah. that's enough, I guess. Like they just kind of, they've never had that relationship with somebody. And so for now it'll have to be enough because they're absolutely terrified of what comes next. And like, I'm getting goosebumps just like talking about it. That was the scene that when I watched it the first time, I saw and was like, holy crap, like, no matter how it lands this plane, this is one of the greatest things I've ever seen. That's great. Well, and I think it's worth mentioning that 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 scene obviously is sort of, for me, the other gravitational force. And I think the opposite really operate really in sort of uh, conversation and, and reflection of each other. But it is worth mentioning that both of us, you and I, and Chad, throughout this, I'm sure, when whenever we talk about what's great about this movie, it is it is partially the performances, but it's also, it's it's a directorial vision. Mm-hmm. This, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that's certainly not true of the majority of rom-coms. I mean, no. yeah. we all fell all over ourselves a couple of years ago, justifiably, when I think, what was it called? Set It Up hit Netflix, because we were oh, like, yeah. wow, the return of, the return of the kind of just okay rom-com. Oh my God. <laughs> Uh, but that movie's not a directorial vision. And, and no. you know, it's, I adore that movie. It, that was perfect for what it was. But this... I mean, it's a Sundance movie, as <laughs> trite as that moving target as that term is. Um, and that's got it. I mean, that's the real distinguishing factor, I think, on top of everything mm-hmm. else. I think what's also interesting to me about that scene is when Jake was on 
his date with Paula. They're having sex, and when he climaxes, he says Lainey, and she, Paula's like, whoa, and they kind of just yeah. like lie there on the floor next to each other, and she's like, who's Lainey? And asks if he wants to talk about it, and he says yes, and it's like, okay, as Chad was saying, they make each other better people. Yeah. Um, but the camera is off kilter, as if, you know, like, there's just something a little off about this relationship, no matter how healthy they are getting at, and once it's above Alice and Brie and Jason Sudeikis lying on the bed, it's completely overhead. It's in their faces. Like there's no room for either of them to squirm away. And it's just, ugh, that whole scene. It's beautiful. I don't know. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> I think I appreciate it far more after hearing you talk about what you're into. So thank you for that. That was awesome. No problem. I think we uh, should be moving towards the end here. I guess uh, I, I think I speak for all of us. Maybe I don't. You can tell me if I don't. I could, t- I could talk about this one for 10 hours. This is one of those ones uh, I'd be happy to talk about. Um, I, just looking through my notes, I'm like, yeah, okay, I guess we're not going to any of this stuff. Um, so just we didn't talk about, like, the plot of the movie or anything. Yeah, but well, like... hey, then, then people have something to do afterwards if you haven't seen it. Right. And you're like, what on earth are they talking about? Go watch the movie. It will all make sense. But so just a high-level overview of my notes here uh, that I didn't get through. Uh, Adam Brody, LOL. Jason Manzuka shows up uh, in anything. It's absolute joy and instantly that much better. Billy Eichner, LOL. Billy Eichner. I mean, when I say this movie is fucking totally all over the place, when Billy Eichner just <laughs> drops in for like so a tight funny. 30 just seconds ripping, man. of the <laughs> grossest stuff you've ever heard, then they pull him back out, and then also there's moments of shocking emotional intimacy. Yes. This movie is, I mean, that, that, it's an eight-octave movie. It is an eight-octave eight movie. movie. Even just the setups for the plot are incredible. Like, just Lainey being like, the guy I lost my virginity to was at my sex act meeting what do you think that means and it's like that's exactly how you would ask your friend girl like okay what the fuck like how do i even begin to interpret this and natasha leon's response is you should fuck that guy (laughs) (laughs) which is a wonderful friend in a movie response yeah (laughs) the last thing i was trying to get there too that i'm just to say and i'm I'm halfway through the list i'm gonna stop it's an endless thing of stuff, each with their own branches and trees on my notes, of all the wonderful things about these very minor performances uh, in terms of screen time. Yes. But that are each doing very specific things. I don't know if it's a bit of a stretch. My mind went to the it takes a village notion, but it seems like in some ways it takes a village to get these two people to end up together. And, and I just, you know, again, that's all specific to my heartbeat when I want to watch movies. Uh, anything that's got a community vibe like that, where it's like, you know, I, I feel like there could be a scene. I'm glad there's not, but in my head there could be where everyone's just very happy that these people ended up together and they're all sitting around talking about how they always need, you know. That would have, for me, tipped into the maudlin, but I, I like that they had established that that could have happened because there's this, there's this cast of characters rooting for these people. You're almost gesturing towards the idea that, that, that there could even be kind of a uniting thread between this and, and Moonstruck, the first movie we talked about here, which functionally ends with the scene you're describing. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and, and what I would say is, it's in my notes, and this was a jumping off point for a discussion, which now, uh, you know, I think we've discussed plenty. In my notes, I just said it's interesting to think about what kind of modernish films, like films in this thing that were released, are going to be 20 years from now's Moonstruck. The difference being Moonstruck was immediately culturally relevant and big, won Oscars. This did not do that. And I don't think this movie is Moonstruck level, but I think that it is certainly on a path where it could grow in a way where it's just universally accepted. Right now it's accepted on small pockets of film Twitter, which obviously, as we all all know, does not stand for real life. Until this episode drops, man. (laughs) (laughs) We will get some haters, but for the most part, universally, you mentioned Moonstruck. It's hard to imagine that not appealing to anybody. And when you men- when you mentioned this one, I just think in 20 years, will this be one of those movies where it's just shorthand for a really great, solid romantic comedy that absolutely encapsulates a very specific era, but also is still relevant now, even though it was a long time ago. Yes. 
Chad, it does seem to me that you just basically said if anyone wants to submit an essay that will get to your heart, it is best to write about a movie that functionally... Oh, it's so easy to figure out how mm-hmm. to get to my heart. <laughs> it sounds like it's basically to to write about movies that are Shakespearean comedies. You said, I want like a big network of people to have a big adventure, and then at the end they get together <laughs> and agree that it's good that the central couple got uh, married, which... Yeah, and I want, I want a court gesture or a few court gestures. I mean, there's a reason Much Ado About Nothing you posted a tweet about the other day. Absolutely. I, I think about the movie once a week. Uh, and, and again... Shakespearean comedy guy at heart. Breaking news, Shakespeare is good at words. Mm-hmm. But the, per, the performances, too. It's, it's also that, you know, very specific, and that's, in that case, about Thompson and Kim Prana. We can't get into Much Ado About Nothing, of course. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm putting the kibosh on this. Just to put into uh, the context there of, like, yeah, that's one of those movies where I don't think it's universally accepted like Moonstruck. But instantly, I think of it, my instant thought is that was an amazing movie. I would watch that again right now. It sounds like from all the head nodding and, and uh, Enzo's just direct yes to my question that we, we're all on the same page. This will be one of those movies in 20 years, if not already headed towards that. I think so. I think for me, what makes it so transcendent is that it is a movie that both it's a screenplay you can set your watch by, you know, like it's just it's hitting all the beats that a screenwriter is supposed to hit. And yet, like Ethan said, it is breaking these rules. You know, it has like it's a movie full of examining red flags and kind of pushing through interpersonal red flags that you might in an early relationship just kind of be like, uh, that's too much for me. And I think that it necessitates this conflict and heavy emotional investment and dissonance and like, Jesus Christ, it pulls it off. Like, it's just so smart about everything it does. I cannot imagine people watching it and basically just being like, okay, that was fine because it's just incredible. It is incredible. Are we all on the same page that it's incredible? Well, <laughs> if you're going to ask me, yes, the answer is yes. But okay, if, if you're going to ask about the 20 years thing, I'm now looking. You said, is this movie going to be remembered in 20 years, right? Yeah, which the scary part is 20 years ago was only 2000. <laughs> it was 2001. 2001. Yeah, in my head, 20 years ago is 1987. So I guess, geez. That's what I'm looking at here on Letterboxd, which is, you know, what I, and what I'm seeing here is, is the movies that have endured are all movies that are timeless in some way. Yeah. And I guess my sort of armchair observation is is that the movies that are very much of their moment have not necessarily been the ones that lingered. We have here Spirited Away, Fellowship of the Ring, Mulholland Drive, Royal Tenenbaums. Fairly timeless movies, essentially. And then you have you have other stuff that I'm just like, oh yeah, that's that's a 2001 movie. So I guess my answer is I'm excited to see because it'll be really interesting kind of what how history shakes out on that front. Yeah. Years, See uh, you guys kind of on the thing. 20th the anniversary Bright Wall Dark Room podcast where we revisit sleeping with other people. <laughs> Perfect. Issue 5061. Yeah. <laughs> so now is uh, we're going to get to the point in the show where we're going to kind of move towards the end of things and winding things down. Thank you guys very much for a wonderful discussion. I love this movie so much. Uh, I'm sure we'll talk more about it in our respective futures, but we will put a lid on it there for now. So this is our 100th issue, and that's a big deal, probably most personally to me, just because I've been working on this since the first issue. It was quite a process to go from one to 100, and 100 of anything is a lot, and you really appreciate it as you go literally counting one month at a time to 100. I don't know, I guess we would have been at an issue like, if I could do my math right, maybe 30 or so when this movie came out. (laughs) And now we're at issue 100. So I just think it's really cool and special, and Ethan and Zosha have been two of the biggest spokes in the wheel that have helped keep this whole thing going. Zosha came on as a writer and then as a, a copy editor and then very quickly, because she's amazing, uh, as a senior editor. And has been doing for, I'd say four or five years, has been doing all kinds of things as the senior editor and who was doing it really well and who I just really relied on in all kinds of ways. And then Ethan joined the fold as well as a writer. And it's, it's a similar process, by the way, if you're looking for how to how to work your way up. <laughs> send, us, send us an essay through Submittable and we'll see what happens and where you end up. But in this case, these two people, ended up being really, really special people to me. 
I'm saying all this not just to make everything awkward and weird in the podcast about emotions and movies, but because this is our last, we're in the four or five days left for Zosha. She got a fantastic and wonderful job. She's going to be the new TV editor, Polygon, that we're going to have to be losing her from a lot of this stuff, including the podcast. So we're absolutely going to have her back on the guest as soon as that is in any way allowed to do. I will miss her voice a lot on the podcast. She was also instrumental in helping develop the shape of the podcast, which is still growing into that shape. Um, and I'm sure she'll be listening on the other side to let us know how we're doing moving forward and offering notes. Now's my time to talk. Chad is choked with emotion, and I am not yet. <laughs> I'm not. I'm doing the therapist stuff. I'm going to bust in as long as I still have non-emotional energy. If this is the point where people who don't like emotional energy want to press pause and pop off, that's probably good. <laughs> Oh, God. You created something extraordinary and unique, Chad Perman. Oh, don't, don't, don't turn it around on me. <laughs> um, you created an, an extraordinary space that um, means a lot to a lot of us. And I, I thank you for that. Thank you. And Zosha, I thank you for the part that you have had in both working on the site and in my life. And see, I told you I was holding it tight because it, yeah, once it came, it was, it was going to come. And now it's here, so... <laughs> I love you guys a lot. And thank you for, for everything. Well, thank you very much, Ethan. The feeling is very mutual. And this is the last hurrah of the three musketeers here. <laughs> I was just pulling myself together. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> just to express, and, and this is what I do as a deflecting move. All my clients will call me out on this when they hear this. Uh, instead of taking in the compliment, which I very briefly did, and I really do appreciate, I want to turn it back to Sosha and just say that we're going to miss you so, so much. It's not news to you. I know we've all got complicated emotions, and this is Brightwall Dark Room, so we talk about those emotions. <laughs> but we're going to miss you so much. And now I'm going to say it to Zosha, and I'm not going to look, because I am a um, Boston-area white Anglo-Saxon Protestant who has trouble with emotion. <laughs> You, the listener um, who read the site, do not know how much Sosha is doing every every single day to keep the site going. Yeah. And um, she went above and beyond. She has gone above and beyond. And um, as I have said many times, the writers and editors and readers of Polygon are, are really lucky. Absolutely. And we just couldn't have done it without you, Sosha. So I couldn't have done it without you. Extraordinarily lucky. Thank you one more time. Aw, thanks, guys. I <laughs> hope we cut all that out. <laughs> <laughs> No, just the me part. I'm not used to being the center of attention. So I'll just say that Brightwall Dark Room is incredibly special, as anybody who's listening to this podcast knows. And we're incredibly lucky to have been able to go for 100 plus issues at this point. And I'm incredibly lucky to have been a part of that in any way. It taught me a lot. And it really has provided me with almost every political opera political. <laughs> So she's leaving the site to run for office. <laughs> I'd like to announce my, my candidacy for yes. And this is where I'm announcing you know, <laughs> every professional opportunity I've had uh, in the last five years. I'm just going to keep hiding myself. Here, I'll do some cross-promotion. I'm wearing my super yaki. I've never seen a movie shirt yaki, because yay. I feel like they made that just for me. <laughs> this is the big reveal. After all these years, you've never seen a movie. <laughs> I'm actually, I usually just read the Wikipedia and bullshit. It's, it's actually incredible how much I've gotten right about the cinematography just from words. <laughs> The type of copy editor who, at least when she had the time in the past, would actually watch movies just to copy edit pieces on them. Like, oh my god, Chad, that's such a lie. You have to stop telling people that. <laughs> no, you're deflecting way more of what we're saying than we are going to let you get away with it. Come oh on. Oh my god, dads. <laughs> Come on, take this in. As Zoja has liked to say, the site has historically run, been run by a grad student and two dads. So you're always <laughs> getting a sense of like our sort of slack dynamic right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
the last thing to do, which is circling back around to a normal part of the podcast after that dip into extreme emotionality and goodbyes to Zosha, is to just check in on what Zosha is watching on part of our last call. So Zosha, it is okay if you say, dudes, I'm switching jobs and I'm super busy and I watched this movie and that's it. Uh, <laughs> but if you have more to add, let us know something that's on your either movie or cultural radar in general, because I know you're also big into other things that aren't movies. Yeah, I've been watching like five TV shows, which is actually my usual <laughs> my usual go. I have not been watching movies that much, unfortunately. I mean, if you want like the jerk answer, I've been watching screeners for The Great Season 2, but I've also been re-watching Succession since that show's back, and another just transcendent piece of pop culture, like truly... Transcendent. I thought about pitching that for this podcast, but I was just like brain empty. I just love Succession. Yeah. That's all there is. Yeah. <laughs> That's what's left. Chef's kiss. Mm -hmm. But yes, Succession's fantastic. And if you'd like to hear further thoughts on television stuff, do be sure to check out whatever Zosh is going to be pumping out oh on a regular God. basis uh, in the near future. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very excited as a reader because I know a lot of her work at Brightwell Dark Room meant that she was writing stuff other places about stuff like that. But now I'm going to be able to just know I have a direct pipeline. Like, here's the funnel of all Zosha's stuff. My true legacy is just making Brightwell Dark Room a TV publication <laughs> as well. Slowly turned us into a, a, a hybrid operation. You campaigned to get movies and TV into the uh, into info. She did. She's fought for that forever. <laughs> Previously, it was literally just about a literal Brightwell in a dark room and no one knew what was happening. And I was like, I've got a vision. <laughs> we should put something on that wall. And Ethan, tell us what you've been watching. Uh, so I, with the partial help of my good friend and colleague, Travis Woods, as kind of a uh, guide, have been working through the Halloween saga leading up... Saga, good lord. Um, <laughs> leading up to the recent Halloween Kills, which is a movie that I have so many thoughts about, and I won't start with here. So I've just been going through, you know, like a, a Halloween movie every night or two, and it's been super fun, and I recommend it. Plugging podcasts that aren't on our network. I've been listening along with, uh, with Matt Gorley and Paul Rust's podcast, which has been... Super great. This franchise is crazy. And if nothing else, you got to watch part six, which is Paul Rudd's film debut, even though it was held until after Clueless because it was all... No way! It was all messed up in the post-production, I guess. And so there had to be a producer's cut. But this is his debut when he's still like, I'm a beautiful, young, serious man. As a big movie sort of cinephile snob who had never really done the, the slashers, it's really fun. Great. Chad, you got to do your outro. You got to do your outro. Let's go. Okay. Uh... All right. Thank you to our guests, Zosha Millman and Ethan Warren. Uh, guys, is there anything you'd like our listeners to know about and or where they can find you online? You can find me on Twitter at Ethan underscore Warren underscore, if you please. And also at www.ethanrawarren.com. You can find a lot of uh, my favorite of my Brightwell Darkroom essays and some information about some other, I think, cool, fun stuff that I have worked on. Cool. And you can find me at Polygon soon. And you can also find my words in an email newsletter called 30 Flirty and Film that I run with my friend Kate. And you can find me on Twitter at Zosha M or Zosham if you're really into magic. And you can usually just Google me. I've got high SEO, as people know. And thank you all for listening to this month's episode of the Brightwall Darkroom podcast. To find us all in writing and read hundreds of essays and now 100 issues that explore the relationship between movies and sometimes television and the business of being alive, please visit www.brightwalldarkroom.com. Uh, the theme of this month's publication is, as we've already said, our 100th issue, Transcendence. Uh, Ethan, do you want us to take us through the release schedule and what's coming up? So we are right now just wrapping up our 100th issue from October, which is on the theme of Transcendence. We are wrapping up this month with... Our old friend and former editor Andrew Root on Paw Patrol, the Paw Patrol movie. He has written something absolutely gorgeous that you absolutely need to read, even if you haven't seen this movie. 
Hubie Halloween is getting a fantastic defense from our good friend Frank Felici, uh, if it needs one. I know for some people it doesn't, but for me it did. And Frank wrote something truly, uh, well, if you've read Frank before, he uh, he went full Frank on this one, and it's it's a beautiful sort of sight to behold. Uh, our good friend Kelsey Ford has tackled The Green Knight, or actually our second essay uh, on The Green Knight, which is, is pretty rare that we do that. So seek that out, because we, we're coming at it from two really interesting, unusual angles. And then at the end of the month, in, in his sort of classic spot, is our, our colleague and friend Travis Woods, who is, is giving us his, uh, he's going back to the De Palma well, the well that he basically lives at the bottom of, with uh, a real exegesis on the masterpiece, Blowout. Next month is all uh, at Generations. It's November, It's we're doing issue 101, and you know, looking back at time in all different ways with generations, uh, starting with Crime Reads editor, former contributor Olivia Reticliano. Olivia, if I have mispronounced that, I do apologize. Uh, on Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, we're going to some really cool and exciting places. We're stopping by my big fat Greek wedding. We're stopping by Fellini's Satyricon. We're stopping by Other Side of the Wind and Real Housewives in New York for good measure uh, and winding up all again with Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull by our friend and former contributor Cody Johnson, uh, who's written for us twice before. And I'm excited to find out if, like Hubie Halloween, Cody has uh, managed to pull a Frank and convince me Kingdom of the Crystal Skull is worth a revisit. So a lot of amazing stuff. As always, please check it out. Please throw a subscription our way. Get on Patreon. We're, we're making great stuff and, and doing it for the love of it. So we hope to uh, see you over at the site. Thank you, Ethan, for mentioning our Patreon. You can find us at patreon.com slash brightwelldarkroom, where there's various tiers with various different little rewards options, and for as little as a dollar a month, you get access to our entire back catalog, which, as we've mentioned, is 100 issues. Go find it. And if you don't already, please follow us and give us a good rating, because those good ratings help us reach more cinephiles. So come listen to the podcast, tell people about it. If you like what you heard, share it, rate it, review it, do all that wonderful stuff. For announcements about our next episode and BWDR publications, you can follow us on Twitter, just at BWDR, or like our Facebook page at Brightwall Dark Room, all one word. You can also keep up with what we're watching on Letterboxd, so you can join us and other writers and dozens of readers as well on our BWDR subreddit. We would love to have you join us in all this. This podcast is produced and edited for the very first time by Eli Sands. We're super happy to have on board, who's been an absolute professional navigating an extremely right-out-of-the-gate emotional conversation between people who have known each other for years. Thank you, Eli. We did it! Thank you for listening to us. Uh, I need a bumper still. Uh, You can say... So long. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get together and look at a bright wall in a dark room. See you at the movies. <laughs> Thank you so much. Bye, guys. <laughs>